The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. So those of you who haven't been here, or maybe you missed last week, or maybe you're visiting today, just to summarize for you where we're at as we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going through the whole book of Corinthians from the very beginning, and Lord willing, we'll go to the very end of chapter 16. This letter written by the Apostle Paul, who founded the church at Corinth, in about the 50s A.D., about 20 years after Christ rose and went to heaven. Then Paul was saved and then commissioned to be an apostle and a church planter and a pastor. So he planted the church at Corinth. Uh, First he evangelized, then he planted the church, and then he did some training, and then he was there about a year and a half and went on to plant other churches. And over the course of two to five years, uh, he'd been away from Corinth uh, planting churches and They've been growing in certain ways, and they've also been having a lot of problems uh, in many respects. And so he had uh, letters of correspondence that would come to him from the Corinthians as they were asking their former pastor and current apostle to answer their theological questions, to answer questions to mediate some disputes they had in the body, uh, which he did. And also he was getting oral reports from people who would visit him who came from Corinth, Chloe's people, whoever they were. Uh, influential family and people in the Corinthian church uh, and some brothers in the Lord that are mentioned in chapter 16. Uh, Stephen and Fortunatus and uh, another brother uh, came to the Apostle Paul and gave a report on how it was going at Corinth. And there was some good news, and uh, he mentions that occasionally, but mostly they had problems and they needed immediate help and attention. So that's why Paul wrote uh, this letter. For the most part, all 16 chapters are corrective. And many times there's a rebuke. And so there's no exception to uh, our passage today is a corrective section from a pastoral heart. The Apostle Paul, who loves these people, uh, he wants to give them truth. He says it in somewhat strong terms, but he does it because it's what they need to hear. And he does it out of heart of love. If you love someone, then one of the greatest acts of love at times is telling them the truth. Even if it is hard for them to hear. And so Paul was a, a true shepherd. And so let's go ahead and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 17 through 22. Now, to set the context again by way of reminder, Paul transitions to a, uh, a different point of emphasis at the end of the book, beginning in chapter 11 all the way to chapter 14. Paul had addressed for the first 10 chapters personal matters, private matters, individual matters. Now he's talking about what goes on in the public assembly as you gather together. As a church, so chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14 are mainly issues that go on when the church gathers together, like we are doing right now, the meeting together, the corporate assembly, when you go to church. Um, so these are of a public nature. Uh, these problems that he's addressing in chapters 11 through 14. Uh, if you look at verse 17, when you come together, verse 17. So that's the public assembly. Uh, beginning of verse 18, when you come together. Then in verse 20, when you meet together, verse 33, this happens when you come together, verse 34, when you come together. And then at the end, as he's wrapping it up in chapter 14, verse 23, as you meet together, as you come together, verse 26. So definitely the context here is public corporate worship, and he'll be dealing with uh, different issues. Uh, The first issue that he dealt with in the public corporate uh, worship that was a problem in their church, creating confusion and Uh, little factions and disagreements was uh, the issue of how some of the women were behaving in the church at the public corporate assembly with respect to how they prayed or how they used their gift of prophecy, either appropriately or inappropriately. And some of the women were doing it inappropriately, uh, usurping authority in terms of their role as a female. And they weren't covering their head when they were praying and prophesying. And Paul said, you need to cover your head if you're going to use the gift of uh, prayer or prophecy in the public assembly to show your place in terms of God's unchanging hierarchy and so that was the issue uh, verses 1 through 16 that was a public issue in the assembly and so now he's going to go on to a different issue uh, that was a problem with the corinthians and had to do with uh, communion or the lord's table or the lord's supper and some things that were going on at that time today we have the we do communion about once a month the lord's table uh, the lord's supper it's called uh, different things some call it the eucharist which comes right out of the bible Um, So we have communion today, and Jesus instituted communion. We're going to talk more about it next week because that will be our passage. But it's a time of uh, corporate worship, reflection, 
in a very intimate and personal way before the Savior who saved us from our sin and remembering him and looking forward to his uh, coming again. And it's one of the two ordinances that Jesus gave at the church. So it's a solemn event and is to be regarded as such, as solemn, as holy, as reverent, as special, as supernatural, with great privilege and great accountability and care in terms of stewards that we are to be of the church of this ordinance called communion or the Lord's Supper. It is to be taken seriously. It is not to be done flippantly. Uh, It's not a sideline activity. It's not an option for the church. It's a command. It's a high and holy privilege. That is communion. That needs to be our mindset. Jesus made that clear as he instituted it, and Paul said the same thing as he gave direction about it. And unfortunately, maybe with time, the Corinthians got careless about the Lord's Supper and began to show a very flippant attitude and a total lack of reverence for the institution itself, for Jesus, and also for the body that they're supposed to be having communion with. And it got really, really bad. And as we read the text, especially in 20 to 22, when we read what was going on during a supposed communion service with the Corinthian church, uh, no doubt most of us would be aghast saying that that can't possibly have been going on in a Christian church. These people couldn't possibly have been behaving that way. Well, yeah, they were Christian people, gross, egregious, unbelievable sin. That's a good question. What kinds of sins can Christians commit? What sins can Christians... Let's say just about all of them, actually. We have the weakness, the vulnerability, the propensity to commit just about every conceivable, despicable sin even if we are true believers. So Paul is not questioning their salvation. He's assuming they're believers. So let's go ahead and look at what was going on and what he was trying to fix by way of reminder. Uh, The title of the sermon is Division in the Church. And that's the pointed issue at hand in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 22. Division in the church. The Corinthians, they just had a problem with this, with division, with getting along. Not everybody probably, but a huge percentage that made it influential that reverberated across the entire body and not just within the local body. Their reputation was being skewed by it because people outside the church noticed and saw that they couldn't get along in their division. That's how severe it was. So much so that Paul heard about it. Man, you guys are just fighting like alley cats. What is going on? So we already saw 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's kind of the theme uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, after he praises them for believing in the gospel, now I exhort you, brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, would you get along, and that there would be no divisions among you. This, this, these schisms that I'm hearing about, what is the deal with the schisms? That is not Christ-like. That is not being spirit-led. But you have this problem in many areas. And so chapter by chapter, Paul is dealing with this. One of their main issues is schisms, not getting along, being divisive and arguing And it crops up very specifically here in chapter 11, this problem that he mentioned at the very beginning of the epistle. So let's go ahead and look at it. Division in the church, the reality of it, what God thinks about it, how to resolve it. And so I just came up with uh, three main points to help us think through this issue of division in the church. This is totally appropriate and practical for us. We have a church of about 220 people. If everybody showed up, we'd have about 250 people. And when you gather 250 sinners together, what do you get? Fireworks sometimes. And sometimes the fireworks that aren't so pretty because we're all sinful, right? So division is just a reality. We'll talk more about that. And so uh, this is incredibly practical for any Christian, for any church, anywhere. Totally relevant. People don't change. Sinners don't change. God's truth remains the same. That's why it's relevant for us. So let's look at these three points here regarding division or these factions, Paul also calls them. And first we'll look at point number one is verse 17 and 18, and that is the venue of these factions, the venue of these schisms, the venue. Where were these schisms and disagreements taking place? Well, according to 17 and 18, it was in the public assembly. Uh, Number one, the venue of these factions is in the public gathering. It wasn't at home with just a few in a Bible study. It wasn't just, he's not talking about somebody's family or a smaller area of worship. This is in the main gathering as they came together. So that's the venue of the factions. It's in the corporate assembly of the church. And I already pointed that out. Verse 17 says, when you come together. 
when you gather together. Now, if Corinthians uh, was around uh, the 50s A.D. sometime when Paul planted that church and when that church existed, already by then, 20 plus years after Jesus died and rose again from the dead, the church of Jesus Christ, beginning with the first church in Jerusalem, had established the tradition, the routine, and the pattern ordained by God that the Christians would gather together corporately on Sunday, the Lord's Day, it became to be known as. The Lord's Day. The book of Acts and Revelation calls Sunday the Lord's Day. The Lord is referenced to Jesus, and it refers to it's Jesus' day. It's the day he rose again from the dead and is Lord of the church. And so that was a change because in the Old Testament, uh, God's people met on the Sabbath day, which was Saturday. We don't celebrate the Sabbath day the way they did in the Old Testament now. We celebrate the Lord's Day. We gather on Sunday. That's what the early church did. It's called the Lord's Day. And so that's probably the routine that Paul had the Corinthians get into, that on the Lord's Day, weekly, you're going to worship corporately the Lord and hear the teaching and have the apostles' doctrine and have communion and pray for one another. So that is the venue. It's the public gathering on the Lord's Day, Sunday worship service. When they came together, just by way of reminder, verse 17, when you come together, the middle of verse 17 and the beginning of verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together. So that's the venue and that's the context and that's what he's talking about. And that's why it has relevance for us. Let's go ahead and look at 17 and 18 in more detail. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. It's a key phrase. I do not praise you. I am not about to compliment you as a church. I'm not going to get you war- give you warm fuzzies in the next paragraph. That's what Paul's saying. If he came here to get warm fuzzies from the sermon from 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 22, oops, that's not the context. He is saying specifically, I do not praise you because go back in 1 Corinthians verse 2, he said, now I praise you. He did praise them earlier in this same chapter. They needed to hear that. They needed to be encouraged because earlier Paul had been rebuking them about a lot of things, about immorality and division and wrong thinking and these schisms and these cliques and being disobedient and hard-hearted and prideful. Chapter 4, he called them arrogant. Some of you are arrogant and puffed up. Rebuked him in chapter 1 for divisions and schisms that needed to, to stop. So he's, he's hammering pretty hard. But not everything they're doing is wrong. There is a faithful remnant an obedient few. And also corporately, the whole bunch, they're at least hanging on to some things that Paul said. And that's why he praised him in chapter 11, verse 2. He said, now I'm going to praise you. I praise you that for the most part, you have embraced me as an apostle. You treated me like your pastor when I was there with you. You have tried to implement everything that I delivered to you by way of revelation and my teaching. I appreciate that. And I praise you for that. Praise God. So he praised them. And they needed to be encouraged in verse 2. So then he makes this transition in verse 17. says, but, mm, yeah, I did praise you for that, but now I'm not going to praise you for what I'm about to say. This, this is hard stuff. Be humble. Listen to the truth. Take it well. Make the changes. Submit to truth. But I'm not going to praise you. And then look at the end of verse 22. The last thing he says is, in this I will not praise you. So, this is a, a paragraph that goes together. Those are bookends. At the beginning, he says, I will not praise you. And at the end, he says, I will not praise you. Verse 17 to 22. It's called a, a pericope or a paragraph or an entity of thought unto itself. That is the context. So I'm not going to praise you. It is a rebuke. So he goes, uh, so in giving this instruction, I'm not going to praise you. And here's why. Because when you come together and meet regularly on the Lord's Day as a church, when you're supposed to be coming first and foremost to the gathering to give God worship and glory, right? Praising Him, thinking all about Him and His glory. That's priority number one. Eyes off of self, eyes all on the Father and on Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Trinity giving them glory. As you gather together, that's priority number one. Priority number two is also thinking about those around you and edifying the saints and encouraging the saints stimulating one another to love and good deeds. So when we gather together on the Lord's Day as you're going to church, we should be thinking as Christians, what a privilege we have to give God glory through worship and praise and service. And also, secondly, how we might edify, serve, and encourage fellow believers and edify other believers. And it's not about me and I. That's the antithesis of God's design for meeting corporately on the Lord's Day. What 
oh, how I can be entertained or what I'm going to get out of this. So, but in giving this instruction, I don't praise you because when you come together on the Lord's Day or when you come together anytime as a corporate assembly, it's not for the better, but it's for the worse. Man, lately when you've been getting together horrible things, it's dishonoring to the Lord. It is embarrassing. That's how bad it is. It's not for the better. They think they had good intentions. Oh, we're going to get together as a church. You know, there are, it is true that some churches, it's better that they not get together at all and assemble because it is dishonoring. It's for the worse. It is not for good. It's not for God's good. It's not for his glory. It's not for the church's good. And it's not for the individual Christian's good. It's not good for their testimony to the world either. And that was a problem here with the Corinthians in terms of compromising one of the two only ordinances that Christ gave his church. When you come together, it's not for better. It is actually for the worse. This needs to stop and immediately cease and desist. Verse 18, he goes into more detail. Well, what in the world were they doing? Well, in the, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, this is the problem. I hear akuo, literally, akuo is where we get the word acoustics, which has to do with our hearing. Or what it really means, I have been told. That's what akuo means. I have been told. A reliable first-hand report, probably from these three gentlemen mentioned at the end of the book or from Chloe and her household. It has been reported to me by reliable sources that divisions exist among you every time you get together. And literally, he uses the word schismata, schisms. The root word comes from splintered wood. I don't know if you've ever seen splintered wood, but it explodes and goes everywhere and it, it can't be repaired. Splintering, that's what it means. When you guys come together, when you come together, that's how ironic this is. When you come together, you're supposed to come to be unified as one entity. When you guys come together, you collide and splintering goes everywhere. Schismata. Divisions among you. And Paul said, and in part, I believe it. Why? Because they had a reputation. And it's happened in other contexts already. He's already addressed this issue. It shouldn't happen. Schismata. He's going to use a different word, factions, in just a second there. Uh, another comment I want to make in verse 18. He says, for when you come together as a church. Paul mentioned the word church in verse 16. He mentions the word church here in 18. He mentions the word church of God in verse 22. And we need to be reminded, when Paul refers to church, he is not referring to a building. See this building? This is not the church. This is a building. These are a bunch of bricks. In our day, in the vernacular, when you say church, usually people are thinking of a building. Ironically, in the New Testament, the word church never, never, never refers to a building, ever. It refers to people, and it refers to God's people, and it refers to uh, the body of Christ. So it's talking about the people of God. When you come together as the people of God, that's what he's talking about. So that's a great reminder for us. So we've been in three different facilities as a church as a body of Christ, but we're the same body. Regardless of where we're located and in what building we meet in, we are still the church of God, right? Because the church is the people, the saints of God, gathered together to worship Jesus Christ. So that is the venue. It's this public assembly. Let's go on to point number two in verse 19. After pointing out the problem, that is their divisions, these schisms, this splintering, these cliques, if you will, in verse 19, he's very disappointed. He's probably highly embarrassed. Nevertheless, Paul, is this same disappointed apostle, is the same apostle who penned and wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 28, where it says that God works all things together for good, especially to those who know and love him. God works all things together for good. God works all good things together for more good, and God works even bad things together for good. Isn't that amazing? I love that verse. For believers, what a promise from God. God can take the worst situation. The bad thing isn't good. That's not what that verse is saying. But God can take legitimately bad things, and through providence, and because he's sovereign, and he is the creator, and he has all power, he can turn bad things into good to fulfill his good plan. And so even though the Corinthians were fighting and they became a public spectacle and they were distorting the reputation of Jesus Christ locally 
in their neighborhood and among unbelieving watchers. Nevertheless, God in his grace and his sovereign providential power can override our stupidity and override our sin and compromise and still accomplish something good in accordance with his will, whether we recognize it or not. That's how awesome God is. And that is also true of what God did in the Corinthian assembly, even though they were messing up and they were the... I mean, when you think about all the churches that Paul planted and all the epistles that he wrote, uh, up to almost 20 different churches... When you think of Corinthians, you just think of problems. Nevertheless, God used the Corinthian church to do wonderful, amazing, great things. And that's the beautiful promise of verse 19. So look at verse number two. The value of factions, the value of divisions, the benefit of schisms, the benefit of wranglings and fightings. Doesn't that sound contradictory or paradoxical? What in the world? I mean, only a Christian can actually believe that truth. The good that results from bad things? Really? The value of factions? The value of fighting? The benefit of schisms? What what in the world is that all about? Well, this is a divinely revealed truth. And that's verse 19. The value of factions. Well, Paul's going to say one of the main values of factions, schisms, are when people are disagreeing and having a disagreement or butting heads. What happens with time is that error is exposed. What also happens is the truth surfaces. That's what happens when you have a schism or the butting of heads or an argument. I guarantee you in any argument, whether it's two people or two groups, arguing and wrangling about something, at least one of those people are wrong. Now, they could both be wrong, but at least one of them is wrong. And hopefully the error is exposed with time. And so that's what Paul's going to talk about, the value of these factions. Uh, Nothing is for naught in the church of God, in the house of God. God works all things together for good, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So that's why verse 19, he says, for there must also be factions among you. And the Greek word there for must means it is necessary. Uh, In other words, it, it can't be escaped. It is required. This will go on in every church. Don't be idealistic or unrealistic thinking that you can exist with a whole bunch of other sinners, you, yourself, and me, myself being a sinner, and we can coexist for a long period of time, and we never have any problems, and we always get along. And Paul says, no, factions are necessary. Factions are a must, especially in the church of God. Factions are actually a part of God's plan. Disagreements are a part of God's plan. God uses factions and disagreements and schism. He goes on. This is an amazing concept and thought. For there must, it is absolutely necessary that factions exist or schisms exist among you. It is necessary. God will use it. It is efficacious. Well, why are you saying that, Paul? By the way, he uses the word schisms in verse 18, schism splintering divisions and then he uses a different word in verse 19 for there must also be get this heresies among you and he's making heresy synonymous with schisms those are those words are used interchangeably the end of verse 18 and the verse 19 some people want to make an over distinction between those two words but he uses the word heresy in verse 19 for there must be it is absolutely necessary that there are heresies among you heresy Usually today when we hear the word heresy, we just think of false teaching. Uh, He was teaching heresy. Well, heresy, it can mean that, but it means more than that. And a golden rule of interpretation in the Bible is every word has ultimate meaning defined by its context. I heard it out there. Context, context, context. So uh, heresy, an important word study, but I I need to review this because it will be helpful for us. The word heresy here comes from the word hireo is the verb. And it means, interestingly enough, I choose. I choose. You know what that means? I want my way. And 100% of the time when that uses word, from what I could tell in the New Testament, that's what it means. Somebody who wants their own way. But not always in a bad way. But it, it, so I, oh, I choose. I choose to believe this. I choose to associate with this group of people. I choose to think this opinion. I choose to hold to this doctrine. I choose to identify myself by this group or this mindset. That's what a heresy is. 
And a heresy isn't always bad. We think a heresy, we think it's always bad. But heresy, when the word is used, isn't always bad. Many times, probably most of the time, it is bad in its context. But let me give you a couple of places where the word heresy is used, and it doesn't refer to false teaching. It just refers to a group of people. Uh, look at Acts chapter 5, verse 17, where the apostles, uh, the church in Jerusalem was growing like crazy. Peter and uh, John are out preaching, and all the apostles are doing miracles, and they're influencing the entire town in Jerusalem, and they're turning the town upside down by uh, gospel proclamation in Jesus. And then they had a Saturday night, Sunday night Vesper service, and then Ananias and uh, Sapphira lied, and so they died, and that was in the public assembly. And so, whoo, the whole neighborhood was fearful of this crazy church where they kill people Sunday night at their service. And verse 12 says in Acts chapter 5, and at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were being done. So all kinds of miracles are taking place, even supernatural death. Signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, and they're doing all kinds of ministry, and they're having great influence in all the cities in the vicinity all around jerusalem verse 16 and so then the pharisees and the jews the unbelieving jews who killed jesus heard about this and they became threatened and jealous and angry and they needed needed to put a stop to this we need to shut these apostles down we need to shut this church down we need to shut this christianity down so they tried to in verse 17 of acts 5 the high priest rose up meaning he took deliberate formal action wielding his authority is what it means he rose up. He called the troops. He called the guards. He called his uh, temple police. He put everybody on guard. He rose up along with his associates. Who were his associates? That is the sect of the Sadducees. The heresy of the Sadducees. That's that same word, heresy. It just means a sect, a group of people that was very identified around a certain world view that separated itself from everybody else. Could be good, could be bad. In this case, it's the sect, the heresy of the Pharisees. And it's not being used to condemn the teaching of the, I mean, the Sadducees. It's not condemning the Sadducees and their teaching. It's just identifying them as this uh, very closed, monolithic, tight group of people that identified themselves differently than everybody else. There, the word heresy is used. And then we're not going to go there, but in Acts 24, that same word, the sect of the Nazarenes. It's the same word. The heresy of the Nazarenes. It was talking about Paul the Apostle when he was on trial in jail. And the testimony against him was this Paul, this ringleader, this, quote, pest, and the ringleader of the heresy or the sect of the Nazarenes. So their Christianity is called a sect. It had identifiable beliefs and commitments that was different than everybody else. So it was a separate uh, group of people. So that's the root of the word heresy so go back to first corinthians and that's where uh, paul uses this word in first corinthians 11 uh, for there must also be factions or heresies among you there needs to be uh, divisions among you and this is a bad negative context context here the way he's using this word and it's not necessarily teaching as much as behavior it's there are people in your church who have the attitude, I choose, because that's what heresy means, I choose to think this way, and I choose to act this way, and I'm going to have, and I choose to affiliate with this small group, and I'm going to be partial towards other people in the church, and I'm going to affiliate with the rich upper class group. And when I go to church and the Lord's table and have communion at the church of Corinth, and participate in the fellowship meal or the love feast that we have at the same time, I'm going to sit with only my group of people, my faction, my sect, my heresy, because I choose to affiliate and only affiliate with them, and I will not interact with the rest of the body. And I will look down on the poor people in the church of Corinth, those slaves who got saved, who work all day long and 15 hours, and then they come to church and they come later after the meal has already started. And we don't care. We're not going to wait for them. We're not going to pray for the food. We're going to eat and get the best of the food first. And we're going to enjoy ourselves and indulge ourselves. And if they show up, oh, well, maybe, maybe not. But if they do show up, those other Christians, the low-life Christians, then they can eat the leftovers for all I care. Okay, I just articulated the problem at Corinth. There was a sect. There was a faction. There was a heresy. There was a group of people who were affiliating only unto themselves they weren't thinking about the corporate body of Christ. They saw themselves as preeminent and holier than thou and the most important part of the body. And they had no need for the peripheral toes and the fingers of the body. 
That was the problem. But God can use this for good because there was a problem. People were being treated wrongly. There was arguing going on. There was debating going on. There were people who had what they thought was the higher hand and the higher road in their view as they looked down their nose at others in the church, trampling them under feet. That needed to stop. That needed to be exposed. And that's how God uses factions or disagreements or schisms in the church. This is incredibly important for me as a pastor or for the elders because we have to at times get pulled in to dealing with factions or divisions or disagreements or wranglings between members in the church. And so when you've got two members, maybe it's two individuals or maybe it's two groups of people and they're professing Christians in the church, the same family of God, and yet they're butting heads and they can't get along and they're fighting and they're unforgiving. There is a problem. At root, there is a problem, and it needs to be exposed. The error does. And with that, the truth needs to surface. And the only way that that can happen usually is two things. is It's got to be confronted head on. It's got to be confronted head on with biblical truth and courage. And another thing that's required, in addition to prayer and those kind of things, is time. Time reveals a lot. It reveals a lot about the true character of people and situations. And so that's why Paul is saying this is this is good. This is necessary. These divisions, these schisms. Do we so uh, GBF is eight years old. Do we have schisms in our church? Do we have splintering? Do we have some people who don't like other people? Do we have members who argue and disagree and back talk and gossip against one another and pick on each other and have bad attitude? Absolutely. You know what? It's in every church. It's in every church. And we need to confront it. And, and Paul says it's necessary because we need to expose it. We need to expose the error. And we need to let the truth surface and become manifest so that we can then confront, rebuke, call to repentance, and if necessary, prune. Prune. Prune that which is unhealthy. Prune that which is dangerous and detrimental. Jesus even gave a parable about that pruning process to protect the innocent, to help the church grow. The apostles early on didn't understand this concept because they they wanted to pull all the weeds out from among the wheat. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. You can't go around pulling weeds out from the wheat because when you pull some of the weeds, you're going to rip up some of the wheat. You can't do that. You are not God. And also, you don't know who the weeds and the wheat are. And so that's why you have to use a specific process that God has ordained in order to allow error to be exposed and truth to surface. There is a process. It's called the church discipline process. And so that's why Paul says in verse 19, for there must also be factions or heresies or divisions among you in order that, well, why, why are they necessary? What good do they accomplish? That's the second part of verse 19. Here it is, in order that. Here are the benefits of factions and schisms in the church if they're dealt with in the proper manner. In order that those who are approved, in order that those who are doing the honorable thing before God may become Evident may become phanereo. That's a very common word in the New Testament. To make something clearly seen. To unveil something. So that it can be seen very clearly. That it might become manifest among you. So a lot of times these factions, the butting of heads over time, dealt with appropriately and by the providence of God, the error will be exposed and the approved, the obedient ones, the godly ones, the ones trying to do the right thing and honor the Lord, they will become evident. They will become manifest for all to see. That's the good that God can accomplish in the midst of conflict in the church. And that fulfills Romans 8.28. God can work all things together for good. And so that's the attitude we need to have regarding sinners in the church. We're all sinful. We're all vulnerable. We can all contribute to the problems in the church. So we need to see the exposure. Uh, look at 1 John chapter 2. A parallel truth that John the Apostle... Remember, he's John the Apostle of love. Love, love, love. He's the nice apostle. He's the one that says only nice things. That's why we have people read the Gospel of John. Because they will get nothing but warm fuzzies if they read the Gospel of John. Well, that's not true. Because I've said this before, I preached through the Gospel of John, and I've taught through John before, but I never preached through it verse by verse until I got to this church. And I was astounded that just about every single chapter in the loving, 
warm, fuzzy gospel of John, Jesus is in a fight with somebody every chapter. Why? Because you've got truth crashing head-on into error and sin. And you've got a train wreck every time. And I'm not kidding, just about every chapter. The Jews, the Jews, the Jews. Challenging Jesus about something. And that's why when he gets to chapter 7, well, they call, yeah, in chapter 7 he said, the world hates me. That's what they think of me. Unbelievers. And guess what? They're going to hate you. And then in chapter 8, it reaches a zenith of their verbal outright hatred in the public square in front of the temple, calling Jesus demon-possessed and a bastard child. Unbelievable. The holy, spotless Son of God in that public schismata. And what that did, it revealed the truth. It exposed the error of the Pharisees, the religious Pharisees, and it also made clearly manifest the holiness, the sinlessness, the truth of Jesus, the Son of God. Crystal clear. That's what it did. And so John experienced that, the apostle. He was there. He traveled with Jesus for three years. Jesus was his best friend. He saw this in action. He knows this truth. He knows that uh, schisms and factions, they are inevitable. They are even necessary, and God can use them to accomplish good. And John, as a pastor in a couple of churches over the course of 40 years, saw this time and time and time again. That's what John Calvin said in his commentary on this. It is inevitable that false People coming to the professing believers will infiltrate the church and they're nothing more than wolves. They're false believers. And God in His grace hopefully will expose them for what they are and we can see their true nature. And so that's why in 1 John 2.19, John talking about this, he says, they went out from us. There are people at our church, when I was the pastor in Ephesus, who left our church. They went out from us. That's what it means. But they weren't really of us. They never really were on the same page with us. And ultimately, it means they never really were of us because they probably were not born again. They weren't children of God. They looked like it, sounded like it, talked like it. We believed it for a while, kind of like Judas. Went three years unexposed. Nobody had a clue. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, then they would have remained with us. They would have remained in our fellowship. They would have remained on in the doctrine that we taught and believed. They would have been like-minded with us. They would have been pursuing peace with brothers and sisters in Christ. They would have been peacemakers, not troublemakers. They would have remained with us, but they went out. They went out. He doesn't just leave it at the bad news. He says the exact same thing the Apostle Paul did. In order that, in order that, for the purpose of, the purpose of. Why do these factions happen? Why are these disagreements? Well, for the purpose of, verse 19, in order that it might be shown, there it is again, manifest, made clear, because God cares about his church. He wants us to know the truth. So that it might be made shown that they are not of us. It's kind of interesting. Those two verses complement one another because the ones being manifest in 1 John 2 are the bad, false people. The ones being made manifest and made known clear in Corinthians are the good people. And they go together. And that is what is accomplished or should be our hope and desire in the midst of a conflict that the truth comes to the surface. So that's why there can be hope in the midst of faction so that great theologian and philosopher who once said i don't know like 20 years ago can't we all just get along the answer is no that's in heaven with believers that ain't going to happen in this lifetime in this cursed world with sinful people and most of all satan who is on the prowl 24 hours a day who never sleeps never slumbers he is a vicious lion goal number one is to destroy the church and his main goals of destroying the church is to sow seeds of division that is how satan operates It's his very name, the adversary, the divisive one, the father of factions and division. That is the fruit of his spirit. Unlike for a Christian, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, peace, kindness. Those are all the very opposite of the deeds of the flesh, really could be called the deeds of Satan. In Galatians 5, the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of Satan. And as long as he's around, we're not just going to get along. That's idealistic. That's not helpful. Do you think that way? Can't we all just get along? No, we can't. It's not realistic. It's a wrong view of humanity. It's a wrong view of sin. It's a wrong view of Satan. But God overrides it all in his majestic glory, power, sovereign province. It's awesome. It's his church. 
Let's go on to number three after the venue in the public assembly, the value where error is exposed, truth surfaces. And then finally, number three, the verdict regarding these factions from Paul and God himself. The verdict, or really, what's the root of a faction or a division or an argument or a squabble that continues and continues and continues and continues and continues? Uh, that's in the verb that Paul used, that it's continual. I hear that um, schisms exist, and he uses it in the present tense. It, man, it just keeps going on. It's incessant. You guys can't put it to rest. You can't solve the problem. So uh, what is the verdict about this? Why, why do these things happen? Verse 20, well, and what was exactly the details of it? He says, well, therefore, when you meet together, when you come together corporately, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. That was their intent. Okay, on uh, this Sunday, we're going to have the Lord's Supper. And by the way, we're going to have the love feast. The love feast was mentioned in the book of Acts, uh, also in Jude, Second Peter. Became kind of a tradition early on as people ate in their homes and showed hospitality. It was a good thing initially, and then it uh, morphed into a bad thing here in Corinth. And it became an appendage that they attached to the main service of the church, what they should not have done. We have a fellowship meal, but it's not during church. It's after church. It's not part of church. We come to church to worship God. We come to hear his truth. We come to pray. We come to encourage and edify. We come to have the ordinances, baptism, communion. That's it. It's a very short list of what we should be doing at church, at worship, at the corporate assembly. And then we have a lot of freedom and liberty to do other things outside that context. And we have a fellowship meal occasionally. But here, the Corinthians, unfortunately, took the fellowship meal love feast and made it an appendage as a part of the main thing they should be doing on the Lord's Day. And that messed everything up. It says, therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, even though you think that's your intent. Uh, verse 21 for actually here's what you really do in the eating each one takes his own supper first so that's what was going on i already said that there are people coming to church early coming to the fellowship meal early coming to and the fellowship was part of the worship service and communion they had it together it was all mixed together and some were coming early eating all the food before everybody else got there eating the best food before everybody else got there even partaking in communion before some of the other christians got there and they used real wine in their communion. They were not using grape juice and they were not using water like some churches do. They were using alcoholic beverage in their communion. And they were taking generous helpings at communion. As a matter of fact, probably some of these Christians, their favorite day of the year was when they had communion. Oh, I get to have a lot of alcohol at the Lord's table today. And that's what was going on because he says, <laughs> look at verse 21. For in your eating, uh, well, first of all, one takes his supper first at the disregard of others. And as a result, uh, the poor people, they're still hungry. They didn't even get any food. And what's worse, you guys that got here earlier and indulged yourself, another in the church is drunk. Drunk in the worship service. Drunk during the communion service. That's how bad this got. That is how shameful. Paul, that's why Paul is just in utter discipline. Verse 22, what? I cannot believe this. I've only heard about it. I haven't seen it myself. You know, I don't want to see it. What? And then here's this rebuke with these rhetorical questions. Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? If you want to, and he's being sarcastic now. He's not encouraging drunkenness, but he's saying, if you want to go drink and indulge yourself and be a glutton and get drunk, do it at your own house. You don't do it at church. That's what it means. So it's a rebuke. But... As a result, he says, or do you despise the church of God? You don't, you don't have any respect for the church of God and God's people. You're not, it's the same old problem the Corinthians had over and over again. Thinking of themselves and not other believers. Not deferring to one another and loving one another. Same thing they were doing with their, their liberty in Christ. They were being selfish. That's point number three. The verdict on factions, they were motivated by selfishness. But that's not the Christian ethic. The Christian ethic is being other-oriented. We think about God and the Trinity first, and glorifying Him, and about others first. Philippians 2, be like Christ, be humble. Think of others first and their needs. That is not what these Corinthians were doing. And they totally disregard uh, the church of God. They shame those who have nothing. They don't even care anything about the poor in their church. What shall I say to you? He, he is with, without words. Because it's probably beyond something. He'd probably never seen this in any of the many churches he planted. This is probably an experience he's never had to contend with before. I understand the drunken orgies among the pagans in their temples. That's a part of their religion and their creed. 
but in the redeemed church of God at the holiest of all ordinances, communion? What? What what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you as I did earlier? I can't. I can't. In this I will not praise you. And then, so he exposes the problem, 17 to 22, and next week we're going to see where Paul says, okay, when you do come to the Lord's table, let me, let me explain that all again of how you should be doing it when you gather together. And so we're going to see that next week, where he just lays it out beautifully, simply, in a corrective manner. Did the Corinthians come around? Well, we'll have to read the rest of the book in Second Corinthians to see what happened. But he was under obligation to speak the truth to his sheep, those whom he loved, despite their compromise and sin. Let me close with this before we have the opportunity to have our communion with one another. Just a few practical principles that we can take away from this uh, passage that kind of very challenging, very challenging. Practical application. What can we take away from these lessons so that we might not do the same? Well, we need to be committed to preserving unity in the corporate body. Preserve our, we need to be committed to being a peacemaker. That is what Jesus said typifies a Christian. We need to proactively... Did you know that pursuing peace in interpersonal relationships is hard work? It is. It is hard work. It needs to be deliberate. It takes humility. It takes prayer. It also takes accountability. We need to be committed to prepare, uh, preserving unity in our church. Another one is uh, don't mix church elements with other components. That's what they did. They took this superfluous love feast that originally was a good idea, and they made it a central part of worship with the saints. They shouldn't have done that. We can't be bringing added elements that don't belong in a corporate worship service as God has prescribed in Scripture. Uh, a third thing, when we gather, uh, the priority is exaltation of God and edification of other saints. It is not personal enjoyment or entertainment. Me, me, me. We can't be self-focused when we come together with the body. Uh, number four, uh, we can't show partiality in the church. We can't have little factions and these social, socially contrived little groups based on gender, ethnicity, finance, socioeconomic, whatever, educational background. It has no place in the church of God. Zero partiality love for all people that's what paul said in philippians 2 love everybody the same love everybody the same and if you're a pastor or an elder out of the 141 members that we have at gbf guess which ones i have to love all of them who do i love the most all of them equally serious i have to that's what jesus requires you can't have favorites and then uh number five uh, we need to approach communion with reverence. So let's go ahead and do that. We're just going to transition right into a communion right now. Let me read uh, so our communion folks can come up. And while they're doing that, I do want to read uh, the, Paul's uh, instructions starting at verse 23 to remind us of communion or the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. It's also called the Eucharist because that uh, is a Greek word uh, meaning thanksgiving. We give thanks at the time of communion. That's from 1 Corinthians 10. So Paul says, okay, in light of the fact you guys are botching it up, here's how... You're supposed to do it. And I told you this once, I'll tell you again. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ gave me the following revelation. That which I also delivered to you, I told you about this when I was your pastor for a year and a half. Modeled it for you for a year and a half. And you forgot. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, there's that word Eucharisto, the Eucharist. When he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It was a symbol of his body, of his perfect life, his sinless life that he would give on behalf of sinners. And when we eat the bread, we remember the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was sinless and died on our behalf, that we might be seen as sinless before the Father. Verse 25, in the same way, he took the cup also. And after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Do it repeatedly as a church. And when you do... Remember that that cup is supposed to remind us of Jesus' blood or his death is what it means. We are reminded that he died as our substitute. That's what we're celebrating. That we might have total forgiveness of sin. As we remember Jesus, first and foremost. What's the main thing you're supposed to do while you're sitting there and taking your communion? is remembering Jesus intimately, personally. And then verse 26, For as often as you 
eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. So we're proclaiming, we're looking back at his death and also we're looking to the future. We're proclaiming his death until he comes. Lord Jesus, come. Come and rescue me. Come and rescue this world. Come fulfill your kingdom. As it is in heaven, let it be down on earth. Therefore, whoever eats in the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. So you see now, see how personal this is and how this makes sense? This unworthy exhortation. Corinthians, you're, you're being incredibly unworthy. You're being flippant and gross when we should be doing it with great sacredness and holiness. So whoever drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man or a woman or a believer examine themselves before they take communion. So And so let him eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who dr- eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. You will bring judgment upon yourself from Almighty God if you abuse the Lord's table. And that's why Paul said in verse 30 that in the Corinthian assembly, because they were so compromised in how they did communion, God was literally killing some of them. Some of them died, fell asleep, and some of them were getting sick as a result of the chastening of God. God doesn't want that. He wants to bless us. So we have the wonderful privilege now uh, to be blessed by God. So in your own heart, as we partake of communion, uh, if you're a Christian and you know Jesus Christ, you are welcome. We have open communion, it's called, here at our church. You don't have to be a member. You just have to be a believer. You have to know Jesus. And you're welcome to come, take the cup, take the bread. We've got... Two tables here and two back there. So we'll go uh, down the aisle and grab it and then go ahead and seat and hold it. And then when we're all together and ready, we'll partake of the elements together. In the meantime, in your own heart, just pray to Jesus. Thank him for all those things we just saw in Scripture. His wonderful life on your behalf. His substitutionary death on your behalf. The forgiveness of sin that you and I have as a result of the new covenant right now. Just a wonderful, wonderful blessing. Truly something to be thankful for. So... uh, Let me go ahead and just say a prayer as we commit our time of communion to the Lord. Father, we thank you again for your word and how it keeps us on the straight and narrow. Thank you for reminding us of the purpose of communion. And we just pray that you can fill our hearts through your Holy Spirit with thanksgiving because of Jesus' death and resurrection on behalf of our sin. We give you the glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.